As many of our listeners know from first-hand experience, homeschooling is hard enough when you have the technology and resources at hand. For those in disadvantaged schools and families, research shows that many students have fallen significantly behind in their studies due to remote learning from the COVID-19 lockdown. Hello and welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast. I'm Kat Clay, the Head of Digital Communications, and with me today is Julie Sonneman, who is the School Education Fellow at Grattan. She's here to talk with me about her new report, COVID Catch-Up, Helping Disadvantaged Students Close the Equity Gap. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Kat. Great to be here. Before we dig deeper into the report, I'd just like to thank the Origin Energy Foundation for supporting this report. We really appreciate that support. Now, it probably seems obvious to anyone who has school-aged children at home during this lockdown, but did students actually learn less during the lockdown? So we know that teachers and schools have made a huge effort during lockdown and parents to make the best of this situation. Um, and from, from what we can see on the whole, it does seem like students are likely to have learnt less. There is good reason that we do send children to school after all. Um, obviously there's going to be a lot of variation. Some students, you know, some students will have actually done quite well during lockdown. They will have had a parent there who's been available um, throughout the day to help them when they get stuck, to talk, you know, to help them talk to their teacher, all those things. But on the whole, even teach the teachers themselves um, are saying from the survey data that we've seen that on the whole, most students have probably learned about 20% less. Um, students from disadvantaged families are likely to have learned around, you know, probably about 50% the, the regular rate. Um, of course, it, it's a very uh, broader question about how do you define learning? There's, that's only academic learning. Obviously, there's been lots of other benefits of the whole lockdown experience where students have had a lot more time in the home, have built on some of those family relationships, learned a lot more life skills. Um, you know, our children have helped with the house renovations during their lunch breaks. There's, you know, they very much know how to use a hammer a lot better now. But, uh, but if you're talking about academic learning, without a doubt, uh, we're, we're, we're likely to have seen some loss. Looking at the report, I wanted to look a little bit at what your definition of a disadvantaged student was. And you had some really interesting categories that it's not just one specific conglomerate of disadvantaged students. There's a lot of different ways that people have been disadvantaged. That's right. So if you think about the students who are going to be the most vulnerable during remote learning, um, it's those that don't have access to a parent to help them in the home. So typically that will be students who have parents who, um, who have fewer resources and time available to actually sit down and spend with them and who have lower levels of education themselves and therefore don't necessarily have the same capacities or interests to help with children's schoolwork. Um, there's also children who are in rural and remote areas, for example, have poorer internet con connectivity. There are students who have poor existing mental health who would have found the social isolation during remote um, learning um, particularly stressful. And I think most students uh, you know, had some level of anxiety around the, the general situation. Um, so there's a really broad um, group of students that we need to look out for. I think, I think the most pressing 
Um, and the most exposed group of students are without a doubt those who typically struggle with their education regularly. And, and we know on average that, that those are the students who come from the poorest families. Um, the, the links between family background and education are very well shown. Um, and for that reason, in our report, we're suggesting that, uh, that the most uh, efforts be, be targeted there. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is how much learning has been lost? Because you've done research to estimate how much learning has been lost by these students. Because there's no perfect situation to um, understand what we've just experienced, it's been very, you know, it's, it's new territory, the remote schooling that's just been implemented. We've looked at teacher survey data, we've looked at research studies of sim similar situations where there's robust evidence. Uh, teachers are saying that. You know, students typically learn between 25% less than normal. For disadvantaged students, about 50% less than normal, as I mentioned before. Um, the research literature is telling us that if you, um, you know, in a, in a really thorough scan that's been done of the research by the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK, which we've been working with on this project, um, where they've looked at the evidence on things like hurricanes, um, snowfalls, uh, cyclones, teacher strikes, you know, all of the range of types of disruptions that can happen to school that are somewhat unexpected. You know, where we, when we've looked at all of that research, um, the most robust and relevant studies actually come from the gap that opens up over the summer holidays. Uh, if, you, if you're trying to get a feel for how students have gone during remote learning, the biggest influence is going to be the home and that's where um, the summer learning loss that occurs, uh, that's, that, that's where the influence of the home is most felt. Um, so, so the research there shows that over a period of about two months in remote learning, you'd expect most students uh, to have learned a bit less, but disadvantaged students in particular will have learned 50% less, roughly, as a ballpark. And that's assuming that... Uh, that remote, that the actual teaching support has actually gone relatively well. So that's actually under a pretty, like, pretty good scenario. Um, so from what we can tell about the existing rates at which students learn between advantaged and disadvantaged students, um, we can see that um, even if advantaged students were learning at, say, at, you know, their regular rate during remote learning, the disadvantaged students would have been learning about 50%. What I found really interesting about this report is that this has a compounding effect. It's not just, oh, I've lost one month of education. Um, one month has a flow-on effect because if you don't learn the first thing, um, then how can you learn the things that progress on from there? And that's a big issue, especially for children in the younger years. So we know that it's a very well-established um, phenomenon called the Matthew effect. And, you know, learning is, um, learning is like cheese. So where there are holes in it, it doesn't recover, um, and it it where there are fundamental gaps in you know learning to to, to decode words, for example, in reading, you know that can just lead to to trouble then identifying words, which then means you start to practice reading words less, and then that then impacts learning in other subject areas, um, and with time those skills. You know, a lot of the a lot of the problems that happen later on in schooling, for example, in high school, stem from issues in primary school. 
Um, so you really can't underestimate the importance of uh, making sure that learning is sequential and that it builds. So in this report, you proposed a very bold new solution to catch up disadvantaged students who have lost learning. Can you take us through your plan for a tutoring blitz? So a really interesting finding um, from our report is the, the high, high impact that tutoring, short 12-week tutoring programs can have on student learning. So there's really robust evidence now that uh, you know, a 12-week period can produce something like five months of learning gain on top of what students would regularly learn. It's quite spectacular. Um, and it's this evidence is not new, um, but the reason why a lot of governments don't tend to invest in tutoring programs is because they're really expensive and it's, it's really um, intensive targeted support. So there's been a tendency to say, no, no, teachers... It's much better to give you know, more training to teachers to reach more students in the classroom. And so, and yes, that is, there are a lot of benefits that can come from that, but I think we also need to be realistic about what teachers can do and not place too much expectation on them. So there are some students who are so far behind in their learning or who just have very complex learning needs that actually need really dedicated support and attention. And that might mean some of the teacher's attention while somebody else is doing more of the work of the class, for example. So this is about recognising um, that there's a now a really big increased spread in the classroom because some students will have fallen further behind. Uh, you know, there's typically already about eight years of spread in each classroom. So if you think about it, that's a, you, you know, in a, say a, a grade five classroom, a teacher is catering to student, students who are anywhere between grade two and a year eight or nine year level. And now that spread has gotten greater. So tutoring is about really targeting intensive support at the point of need for students so that it's at their uh, point in learning. And it's we know that tutoring works best when it's short, regular sessions. So three to five short sessions a week. Um, there's a, a number of different people who can deliver tutoring programs effectively, not just teachers. So there's increasing evidence that um, uh, teaching assistants deliver tutoring and get the same results as teachers. Uh, there's programs in the UK that have come to light in the last few years where they've used young graduates as teachers. Uh, so student, you know, students who um, maybe you know science students or you know who are studying actuary or maths are great tutors in their particular field, um, as well as pre-service teachers, you know, who are studying to be teachers. So there's. There is a wide workforce out there that we can draw on. We're suggesting it would be 100,000 tutors that would be needed to provide tutoring as a catch-up for the remainder of this year. Um, part of the reason why we've also suggested tutoring is because it's a fantastic um, opportunity that can be rolled out really quickly within six months. And we know at the moment that fiscal stimulus is at the forefront of government priorities. Um, so there's a lot of money going out the door to stimulate the economy and giving young people who can work as tutors money also helps to stimulate the economy. I might actually touch in on that um, because it feels like $1 billion is a lot of money in the current state of recession. I mean, we've got to be really careful about what we're spending money on and what governments are spending money on. What makes this program worthwhile? There's a huge range of reasons why we invest in education, for the social benefits, the economic benefits, social cohesion, society broadly. 
Um, if you want to talk about the economic benefits, we can already see just from a cost benefit analysis that uh, helping the learning of the most disadvantaged students would provide boosts in future wages that would far outweigh the costs of this initiative. So it already pays for itself. Um, secondly, we also know that you know, education has a huge impact on economic growth longer term in terms of productivity. Uh, I think the Productivity Commission, in looking at all the different ways in which you can boost productivity, uh, they named education and investing in skills as the number one priority for Australia recently. So this is a this is a huge economic priority for the government. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, for example, there, there are many ways you can invest in education. You could invest in shiny buildings, for example, like with the building education revolution back in the global financial crisis. We all remember that. And look, that served its purpose in terms of the infrastructure spend. But if you want to invest in education for education outcomes, then investing in teaching and learning of students. Catching students up isn't just a matter of catching up their education. It has a flow and effect to their earning potential later on in life. And you make a pretty strong argument for why that's important in the report. Schooling has a huge impact on the future of students' lives. And you kind of underestimate right now that there will be a number of students who don't enjoy school who have missed periods of school and who now have had a period potentially that are at home, which is which has not been necessarily positive. And, and they are at real risk of dropping out or just disengaging. And a big part of our initiative, uh, you know, and there's a number of ways you can you can you can tackle that, but the real benefit of tutoring programs is that it is also establishes a close relationship with students at the school where there's that careful attention of someone saying we care about your learning and it's important to us and that's that is part of the benefit of tutoring programs it's not just the academic it's also that social relationship and that connection that students have with the school um, and um, there's a number of different ways that you could try and do that in terms of trying to build some of those connections like through you know uh, arts programs or sports or but from what the evidence tells us, if you're if you're interested in keeping kids engaged and feeling good about school, then helping them with their learning is a is a big place to start. Apart from the tutoring blitz that you've suggested, are there any other programs we should be looking at funding? Because we're looking at a six-month timeframe for the report, we've also suggested literacy and numeracy programs, which are have a very high proven effect. They involve sort of a package of um, very discrete kind of um, classes and, and skill areas. So, for example, in uh, reading comprehension strategies or um, the use of phonics um, in the sort of younger years. So where that they can actually be relatively easily rolled out. So it's like a training materials um, assessment sort of support in schools. And this is something that government departments are already trying to do anyway, so it's really just building on those efforts. We're suggesting $70 million be invested there. The other, there's a few other areas. Um, one is also around student wellbeing, which I touched on before. So uh, we know that, you know, there will be a number of kids returning to the classroom who will be anxious and may have had pre-existing mental health issues before the crisis. Giving teachers extra training on how to actually spot some of those um, issues and what that looks like in learning in the classroom. So 
is obviously a big priority. So we're suggesting, you know, immediate training for teachers in that, and that's something that is we know is a big need anyway for teachers to skill up on. Um, and also behaviour support. So for, you know, kids who might be having and showing some behavioural issues at school, on return just uh, really supporting schools in having some of the extra resources there to, to also help with that. So having one-on-one -on -one sort of sessions with students who might need it. Um, we're suggesting sort of small-scale trials in those areas, given that they are a bit trickier to roll out. Um, and a big part of the package is also around evaluating the initiatives. So we've set aside $100 million to encourage, you know, this is a really great opportunity to learn about what works and also to, to think about how we're going to tackle the, the much bigger equity gap that already exists. Finally, what outcomes could we expect for disadvantaged students if we put this tutoring blitz in place? Look, I think it's a really exciting time. I think we potentially now have a um, chance to make big investments in tutoring programs, which we know are often really expensive. And for that reason, we don't often uh, invest in them as much. And we know that they can be really effective. So I would hope that, that students who have been struggling with their learning actually make some breakthroughs in the next six months because they're getting that really individualised attention um, for them, which, you know, they haven't had to date. So, and I think we'll also learn a lot along the way about how to do tutoring well, which is a really key piece of the puzzle for um, solving the broader equity um, gap that is much larger than what we've just seen in COVID. So I think I think there's there's some, you know, some great potential benefits for students. I think there's some big learnings that government can also have along the way about how to invest in to help solve inequality. Um, so I'm optimistic. And I think, you know, if it also ticks the fiscal stimulus um, package as well, then hopefully, you know, there'll be some young people out there who have some extra income from being tutors who'll, who'll spend it. So win-win for all. Thank you so much, Julie, for your insight. If you'd like to read the report we've been talking about today, you can download it for free on our website. Just go to the homepage at grattan.edu.au. While you're here, Grattan Institute is a non-profit organisation and it's coming to the end of the financial year and we really rely on donations from people like you. If you found our work valuable this year or listen to our podcasts, please donate at grattan.edu au forward slash donate we would really appreciate it finally you can join the conversation with us and continue it on social media on twitter at grattan inst and facebook grattan institute and while you're here if you enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app thank you so much for listening and take care